Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode, we interview recent winner of the Al Newharth Award for Excellence in the Media, Leslie Visser, who was on campus earlier this week to speak with our students about her groundbreaking career in sports journalism. Leslie, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm having so much fun, Michael and Adam. I was so honored to win the Al Newharth Award. And when they said, would you also go and speak at the University of South Dakota? I said, in a minute. I wasn't thinking when I accepted that it was going to be February, but <laughs> I have a friend, Mary Panizzi, who's traveling with me, and we're having a blast. You know, have you ever been to South Dakota before? Uh, yeah, we landed in Sioux Falls. And do you guys know Pat O'Brien? Remember the great uh, Pat went to South Dakota and he um, uh, was a pretty renowned. He wrote for David Brinkley. Then he was on CBS with me for many years. And then he's went. he hosted uh, Entertainment Tonight. But Pat taught, taught me. Do you guys want to hear it? Pat taught me the Sioux Falls fight song. Oh, let's hear it. Do you guys know it? You want to join I'm not in? sure if I know it, but if you know it. Mary, are you capable to join in? I cannot believe we are here and you don't even know the Sioux Falls fight I'm song. I'm not from Sioux Falls, so that I'm oh. going to defend myself there. Oh, like I am? Well, yeah. Well, okay. but I have a, probably a rivalry with Sioux Falls. Uh, it would, it, it might be offensive if I were well, to Well, then we're going to hear your fight song, aren't we? I don't know about that either. Okay, here it is. I come from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, greatest city that I know, and I'm here to say that I'm gonna stay second hundred years. Watch it grow. Hey, um, hey! You, you just made the Sioux Falls Chamber of Commerce extremely happy. So thank <laughs> well, you very much. Pat O'Brien taught it to me. <laughs> so, I, wh what did you know about Sioux, uh, about Sioux Falls or South Dakota before coming here? I mean, oh, thanks for asking that. I actually have a little, you know, a uh, place in my heart for it. Um, I worked for George McGovern for oh, a okay. year, and uh, I went to college in Boston. And uh, you know, we'd go to the New Hampshire primaries, and he was so nice. He would write, you know, little notes thanking these college students for going around knocking on doors. I think we were told to compare him to Adlai Stevenson, of course, whom I didn't know or anything, but Adlai was the uh, genius. Um, I think Illinois, maybe. But uh, McGovern, you know, our whole thing after it was. Uh, of course, he only won Massachusetts, so our whole thing was, don't blame us. We're from Massachusetts. <laughs> no, my dad was a McGovern volunteer as well on his campaign. I was going to say, yeah, he, he had, it was friendly territory in Massachusetts. Um, now, you obviously are here to be honored for an amazing career. It's a career of first. You're the first woman enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, first woman to work on Monday Night Football, first woman to work a Super Bowl sideline. You're the only sportscaster, male or female, to have worked at a network broadcast on the Final Four, the Super Bowl, the World Series, the NBA Finals, the Triple Crown, the Olympics, I'm going to run out of breath here soon, the US, Olympi or the US Open, and the World Figure Skating Championship. I mean, were no wonder I'm exhausted. Right? <laughs> Were you seeking to blaze a trail, or was that just like a necessity of what you wanted to do? It came with it. I only wanted, I only wanted to cover sports, and I knew that would be the challenge. But and I, I just spoke at uh, Gary's class, and I said, you know, you must think that they're not hurdles; they're challenges. And I had the passion, and I had the knowledge, and the third ingredient you need: you need stamina. I mean, you know yourself, a lot of days are long, a lot of them aren't that fruitful, but I knew that I wanted to cover sports, and I really, 
the Boston Globe, it's considered the Mount Rushmore of sports sections. We're always voted the best in the country. Uh, sports Illustrated said we were the best of all time. So it was really a challenge just to go into the Globe every day. But um, I never thought TV, never. TV for me was, you know, Walter Cronkite, Huntley Brinkley, not, you know, <laughs> somebody, a kid from the Berkshires of a poor Irish family. So, uh, but it's been... Uh, they've been building blocks, not that I noticed. You know, I can look back on it, and now I say, I really never wanted to be the first. I wanted to be the first of many. What drew you to sports? I don't even know. I just had that passion the way some kids uh, love poetry, some love music, uh, many love sports, and my family moved quite a bit, and I think sports was the element that united us. You know, we lived in Maryland. You could talk about then the Colts in Baltimore, the Orioles. We lived in Cincinnati. We lived, my dad worked for the Stanford Research Institute, so we moved quite a bit. So sports was really kind of uh, something you could talk about in the neighborhood. Now, you released a book in, I believe it was 2017, titled Sometimes You Have to Cross When It Says Don't Walk. And I read the story behind the title of the book, and I, I love it. I don't know if you can just share it with our audience. I will, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that, Michael. Uh, I was 10 years old, living in Cincinnati, Ohio, and there were no sports jobs for women, no sports writing, no sports casting. And... Uh, my mother, who was a teacher, uh, we were walking around in Cincinnati, and she said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And instead of saying you have to be a nurse or a teacher or a domestic or a homemaker, a secretary, uh, she didn't. She changed my life in one sentence. I said, I want to be a sports writer, and she said, that's great. Sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk. Yeah, I mean, I just love that. Powerful. I, I, and... I mean, how often do you think about that, I guess? I mean, is it... Almost every day. Almost every day. I mean, for, for my mother came from poor Irish family, got herself through college, uh, ended up... She taught for 35 years. Her students loved her, but she really had a vision. My dad came from the Netherlands, so for somebody from this Irish small-town background to marry kind of a worldly guy from Amsterdam. She, she was really unusual. Now, you said that you started um, with the Boston Globe. It was a Carnegie Foundation grant, correct? I mean, what, what you know, we obviously are here in a college institution. A lot of, I think, the first starts that our students get are in internships. I mean, how important was that position to the start of your career? I would say for... For everybody, everyone who's listened to this, that internships are the way to go. And mine, obviously you have the new hearth, uh, but mine was the Carnegie Corporation, the great Andrew Carnegie, who most people don't know. He was our greatest American philanthropist, uh, libraries, um, grants. So he had this grant one year, 1973, and it was for 20 women in America who wanted to go into jobs that were 90% male, which in 1973-74, all, you know, we're not talking about the 1800s, but the 1900s, they all, so a woman from uh, Michigan got it for uh, orthopedics, a woman from Johns Hopkins got it for, I think, uh, oh no, the woman from Michigan got it for archaeology, a woman from Johns Hopkins got it for ophthalmology, and I got it for sports writing, <laughs> which was nuts. Uh, it, we had a round of interviews, and uh, 
then you were awarded it, and the Carnegie Corporation would pay the stipend. So going to the Boston Globe was such a great sports section. And I really uh, was very powerful for me because there was no Google. There, there was no nothing. It was all your mind, your ability, and your stamina. So I think internships are staggeringly important. You know, were you um, drafting copy, working on stories? What was kind of your role there? No, I got hired as a sports writer. Oh, so you were actually writing stories. Oh, from day one. And for the Globe. I mean, it was wild. It was, uh, I had high school football, which everybody should do a stint covering high school football. I just told this story, if you want to hear it. I, um, I had the smallest division. We had people like Dan Shaughnessy, great calm, invented the Curse of the Bambino. Um, so we had great people that we were all young, but he had a much bigger division. Uh, but I had the smallest. So one of my jobs every year stories was the Martha's Vineyard Nantucket which I don't know if you guys know they're small islands off Cape Cod they're you know they're wonderful but uh, I would have the football game so when you're first learning football on the fly and you have to keep all the stats yourself which is great training um, but you know I've watched a lot of football as a kid but now I'm keeping every stat first and ten off tackle and so you know how when you get up to the 15, then you cross, you got to do the math there a little? So I didn't have time. I would just give the kid 20 extra yards, right? Who's going to see it? There's no Google. <laughs> Nobody cares. You know, we have the Red Sox, the Celtics, the Bruins, the Patriots. So my little story on, you know, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, nobody's going to read it. So anyway, about, I think about a week later, there's a phone call for me at the Boston Globe. And they said, Leslie, there's a call for you. I say, hi, this is Leslie Visser. And I hear, hello, Leslie. This is Coach Paul Bryant of Alabama. Bear Bryant, right? I wasn't, I was like, oh my God, what is this? He says, I see from your clippings that you got a player up there at Martha's Vineyard rushing for 400 yards a game. Is this somebody I should be looking at? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, "Uh, Coach, I really don't think the Four foot two fisherman's son is really what you're looking for at Alabama. I bet though, if you were to ask him, he he points to that uh, newspaper clip and he says it's in the ra- it's in the record. It's it's, in the- hey, we're not taking those yards back, no matter well, what Leslie kn- says. I got to know him later, and we laughed over it. We went, you know, he drank his Jack Daniels, and we went out and had a couple. And I said I was so nervous, Coach. You know, but yeah. So the, the Globe had me do high school football, and then they made me the first woman to cover the NFL the next year, which was just insane. Um, I mean, you may have heard this story or, or not, but when I started, like I say again, not the 1870s, the 1970s, the credential that I wore to go cover the game on the credential, it said "No women or children in the press box." You know, you you said this a little bit earlier. You wanted to be the first of many. I mean, were you cognizant even at the time as you were kind of moving up the ranks in journalism that you were the only woman, that that you would find yourself (laughs) sort of alone amongst men? I mean, did you embrace that role? Did you try to push it to the side? I mean, how did you deal with it, I guess, like as you were doing it, if that makes any sense? Yeah, no, it does. I um. I did not then think of myself as such a trailblazer, which now even I read my own resume. I'm like, really? Are you kidding? But uh, I then I just thought I wanted to make every at-bat a quality at-bat. So if that were covering... Martha's Vineyard, or then I was Rick Pitino's beat writer when he was at BU and I was at the Globe, so he's been one of my best friends for 40 years. He just won the Athens, the Greek. Right. Yeah, he's over yeah. there. He texts me all the time. Uh, but he, 
I, I was privileged to be a beat writer on basketball I, I later for BC when they were actually pretty good. But yeah, the Patriots, uh, that one, well, for all of them, I was always the only woman. But that was so enormous because every city the Patriots would go to, somebody would do a story on, oh, the only woman. But I didn't think of it, I thought it more... Um, you know, unusual than trailblazing. That didn't come till later that, you know, finally I noticed, here I am, like you mentioned all those things, I'm first woman on all these events and all these scenarios. So, I mean, I knew it from the Patriots when uh, they didn't have ladies' rooms. Right. Now, can you imagine that? I mean, imagine anybody going to your job and you have to time when you're going to use the restroom based like I'd wait till the Patriots had first and 10 on their own 20 they were not the gold standard they are today so I would run over to the one public ladies room and run back before they punted which was quite often in those years I mean that's really interesting I mean who did you look up to as mentors then I mean that's such a critical I think you know I look at my own career and it's like I just I had so many amazing mentors I mean did you have women role models? I mean, you talked about obviously the role of your mother in your life, but who else when you're sort of, no. you know, doing, doing I was the, always first. the first? No, no, I had none, but I had great, great men uh, who took chances on me, which you have too as mentors. Uh, Vince Doria was my editor at the Boston Globe, later went on to run news at ESPN for 25 years. And he, uh, he gave me those opportunities. He, you know, uh, he sent me to the Final Four. He sent me to Wimbledon. He made me the first woman to cover the NFL as a beat. And then at CBS, uh, they'd had Phyllis George, who was Miss America, and they said this time, she's great, by the way, great friend, but they said this time we want to hire uh, Phyllis knew TV, but she didn't know sports. So they said, this time we want to hire a woman who knows sports and we'll teach you the TV. But it was all on the fly. I had no um, experience. I mean, I shared some of my embarrassing moments with the class before. I mean, it was it was such a frontier, and um, I didn't. I had male mentors, and I became the female mentor. I mean, you talked about covering high school football, and then sort of that next year being able to cover the NFL. Was there a particular story you worked on where you were like, "Hey, this I belong. This this is quality work. This is as good as anybody is putting out there." And it was just that moment where you were like. I can do this. I can relax a little. Yeah, I mean, I covered, I mean, it was hard covering a beat. You know, you got to go every day. You have to develop sources. And I was caught, and John Madden used to call it a two-way go, because if I went to dinner, which all writers do, go to dinner with players, well, then it was, she must be sleeping with him to get the story. I couldn't just, so it was, and of course, there were no provisions for equality, so I was always out in the parking lot waiting by myself. So it was really a rough challenge, but I didn't look at it like that. I looked at it like, I don't want the NFL to to say a woman can't do it, and I don't want the Boston Globe to say, well, we tried, but a woman can't do it. So it was so many anxious nights, but I tried to keep it to myself. Uh, Yeah, the one story that I did, the Globe was a writer's paper, which you may or may not know, and um, so they gave you room, and they gave you time, and I did a story. He was a running back, a kick returner for the Patriots. He'd been uh, with the Cincinnati Bengals, I think a little bit with Oakland. His name was Jess Phillips, and he, um, real smart guy. He'd st- studied one summer at the London School of Economics, but and he was um, pretty popular, but very esoteric. He he read, you know, the Harvard Business Review, and um, an African American guy, and he, he he for some stupid reason 
He had a love of gold, and for some stupid reason in Reno, Nevada, he held up a jewelry store. He did. He waited till they were kind of closing. Then he held them up, but one more customer came in, and he had a gun, and um, it turned into kind of like a shootout. Nobody died, but then he ran from the store, and the police said he ran like a deer. He was so hard to catch, you know, with the cars, the motorcycles. They finally found him down the bottom of an alley, and he went to jail, and he let me visit him in jail, which is very unusual for a woman. And he was broken, embarrassed in front of me, broken for his family. But I won all kinds of awards for that, and I felt like, wow, you know, that that I can play with the big boys. Yeah, you talked about the Globe being kind of a, a writer's paper. Um, how did you feel about transitioning then to live TV? I mean, did you did you feel like you were kind of leaving your first love behind, or did you were you able to kind of continue to pursue both avenues? Uh, I never wanted to leave the Globe. When CBS came uh, came to me, there were the two great executive producers, Ted Shaker and Neil Pilson. And I was like, why would I leave the Globe? You know, and they, they said, Leslie, at that time, there are only 20 of these jobs in America. And they're named Brent Musburger, you know. And, uh, well, we had Madden and Summerall. I mean, these are the names of people who have these jobs. There are only 20 of them. They're network jobs. And then I thought, well, I'll flex a different set of muscles. I had no interest. I'd never done any TV. And... Uh, but I, uh, you know, I thought, well, I'll flex a different set of muscles. And for the first three years, um, most people then thought TV was not the equivalent of print. And we, we had a snobbish attitude about it. But the Globe said, we'll let you do both. So for the first three years, which was incredibly hard, but I worked for both the Globe and CBS. And then I just transitioned to CBS. You know, it's, it's funny. I mean, I, we talk about live TV and I mean, you were doing live TV in front of literally like millions and millions of people. I get nervous on this podcast. I think my grandma Vani is the only person that <laughs> probably listens to it. Shout out to my grandma Vani. Hi, but, Graham. Um, I mean, how did you deal with that? Were how did you deal with the nerves? I guess. Yeah, and I had a lot of them, but I uh, I used to tell myself, um, "You got this job because you've earned this job." So. Um, act like you have something to say. Like, you ask great questions, Michael. You have something to ask, and you know that you want to elicit this. So I would say, okay, I, I never use cliches. The Boston Globe writers would kill me. So, matter of fact, I'm in the Sports Writers Hall of Fame, and uh, after writing that book, they said, if you didn't write every word yourself, we are going to throw you out. Because, you know, everybody in TV does as told to, right. Right? or with. You know, but they said, oh, no, it has to be every single word yourself. But uh, that's what I thought. I thought, you know what? I have something to tell that... Um, um, my then husband, Dick Stockton, who was so wonderful, he said to me, look at it like this. Uh, if it interests you, it will interest the audience. So if it bores you, it will bore them. So that's why I tried to keep that in mind. You know, do you have a favorite live TV moment? I mean, that's the fun of live TV, right, is the kind of pandemonium that surrounds it. Do you have a favorite one where you were like, can't believe this happened, can't believe this just happened in oh, front of yeah, tons you, of people? I just shared my most embarrassing moment, which afterwards, Michael and Adam, just sitting over there, are you going to have one after I tell mine or no? 
No, see? I don't know. Not knowing the fight song of my hometown That's in true. front of Leslie Visser might be an embarrassing <laughs> when one, I think. When she knew the Sioux Falls. <laughs> uh, well, I will tell you, uh, many things people don't understand in TV. The great Charles Corralt said that TV is the duck on the pond. It's placid on the surface, but paddling furiously underneath. Is so much going on. Like, even you know for your own podcast, you have to research it. You have to think. You have to think on the fly. But the one thing... Um, did you see the end of the Super Bowl this year where our Tracy Wolfson just got yes, smashed? I know exactly what you're talking about. At the yes. end. She, Brady, Brady was turning, hugging Gronk, hugging Bob Kraft, uh, everybody. And uh, and she's small. She's great, but she, and she's small. So, But I cannot tell you, that scrum at the end of a game is nuts because you're being pushed, pushed, and you can't get the coach until the coach hugs the other coach, and then 10 other people get around them. So that that is insane. But my most embarrassing moment was when I just went from the Globe to TV, and uh, I'd covered Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, but never nothing for TV. So um, the Globe, uh, I'm sorry, CBS, Brent Musburger said, let's go out to Leslie Visser, who's with Hannah Mandlikova. She'd had a great summer, rose in the rankings, 55th to 5th, and she was from Prague, very thick accent. So Brent throws it to me. I'm not nervous enough, right? My first TV I mean, oh, God, I can't believe I'm telling this. Okay, my first TV. Did I mention I'd just gone to TV? <laughs> okay, so my first TV, and Brent throws it to me. I say, thanks, Brent. Um, to Hannah Mendelikova, congratulations on your win. Hannah, you went from 55th to 5th in the world. To what do you attribute your sudden rise in the rankings? And Hannah from Prague says to me, <laughs> well, I think it is my new couch. So I thought, I don't know. Maybe she's sleeping better, you know, something like that, right. right? So I say, oh, did you get some new furniture? And she looks at me. She's 15 years younger at the time. Now. She looks at me and she says, oh, don't be ridiculous. Billie Jean King, my new coach. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Pretty bad. <laughs> Pretty bad. Brent's head hit the table. CBS played it every single year at the <laughs> seminar. Oh, remember the time, Leslie? A, a good Christmas party story, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's. I just told uh, some of your players, some of the football players were in there that, you know, you get hit on all along the way. And I used humor for it. I didn't go running to the human resources or a lawyer. But they all love my story about one time. He won't deny it. One time Deion Sanders called me in the, the team was playing the same place as some of the media. So he calls me at 3 o'clock in the morning. Yo, baby, yo, baby. You, you know, you want to come over to my room? I said, Dion, it's three o'clock in the morning. And he says, oh, you afraid someone see you in the lobby? <laughs> I said, no, Dion, it's not the point. <laughs> you have to have a sense of humor. I mean, but, but I mean, you bring up these challenges and I mean, they are challenges, mm -hmm. right? What advice would you give young women journalists in particular who have to go into a locker room or just interact in a, you know, hyper competitive kind of male dominated environment like that? Yeah, I'm glad to see. It used to be that all the women in sports, we knew each other. You know, Chris Brennan, <laughs> we all were all were friends, and uh, we would send each other Christmas cards. But uh, now there are thousands of them, and I don't think, I think players are used to it. Um, what does still happen is um, men who maybe aren't doing as well in their own beat or whatever, they think that women, they still have a prejudice a little bit against them and uh, that's why I always tell them your knowledge is unassailable like I rode John Madden's bus with him for five years what a trip right and he would sh put up that 
those plays on tape, and I know how to diagram a safety blitz. I can recognize the Redskins' counter trade, their offensive, their great play. I know the Packers' sweep. Uh, it If you have knowledge, you are unassailable, and that, I think, and that's hard. You know, it's not, uh, it, it's not the top of the Sunday. It's the bottom. Right. You have to put in the work. I mean, it, it Obviously, journalism is changing so much. I mean, from the time that you started till today, advent of new technology, obviously new platforms, right? I mean, how, how do you think that changes the way that young journalists try to break into a career like this? I think there are two dilemmas with it. Uh, one, press boxes used to be filled with stories. Like, I'm telling you stories. What do you know? What'd you hear? Uh, whatever. Now, I go in a press box like the NFC Championship. Everyone is looking down at Twitter. There's no, I don't see nearly as much interaction, just human contact. And the second thing is people now, which was not my training at all, people now want to be first rather than sometimes accurate or best. First is what counts. And, and you know where it changed to is when I grew up in it, uh, it was, everything was the answer. You know, why did the, why did the, quarterback, uh, you know, what happened? What happened? Now it's the question. Do you think Zion Williamson should sit out rather than just waiting until is he going to sit out, you know, or any question? Do you think that athletes' relationships with the media has changed? Do you think that they are more suspicious of being open and candid because of things like Twitter, because they're worried about anonymous sources saying what? Absolutely. I mean, every talk show you listen to is they say it's never got a name with it, right? It's they say that uh, Kyrie Irving isn't a good teammate. You know, they everything's they say. And, yeah, I can see where as athletes they're wary of it. I mean, in my time, you had to put your name on it. And, it, it, you know, even if you didn't have a couple of sources, you couldn't go with it. But now, that's what I'm saying. Now it's just the question, you know. Will sports gambling ruin the NFL? So it's a question. <laughs> I mean, where do you think that journalism goes in the future? How do young journalists in particular continue to get the access, continue to, you know, frankly, find environments where they have mentors and stuff like that, where they can develop into full-fledged journalists, be able to do the type of research that a good story requires like that. I mean, good content, you know, requires work. And if you don't have maybe the environment that supports it, it's hard to ever learn how to do it. I mean, what would be your advice to like a young journalist who might not have an opportunity, they might have a blog, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, is it just... I mean, like you said, like finding the tape and, and learning the sport. I mean, what would your advice uh, be? I would say a couple of things. One, you have to have real discipline, discipline to not just go with the crowd. Like I'm not saying, you know, after a game, every go everybody goes to Verlander, you might have to go to him. But you should actually seek out your own sources, which takes discipline. It's a lot easier just to stick your mic in the pack in a locker room. But uh, uh, two things I would say, pick a few players, which is what I did in the beginning, a few players, a couple of assistant coaches. I mean, I, I made myself spend it takes time but I made myself learn who was like the tight ends coach who eventually became a head coach but they and I could always get to them I mean Bill Belichick still sends me a Christmas card if you could believe that because I met him in 79 he was Parcells assistant you know he was really nothing I think he might even been the special teams coach then even before defense and uh so I'll, and I don't call on him much, but when I need him, I can get him. So does the picture? Does he just add a ring every year? On the, is that <laughs> the photo? Oh, it's not even a picture. And he writes in tiny, tiny letters, 
Bill Belichick. Like, I don't know. It comes from the Patriots, you know. <laughs> and Bill. But I would say that. That's one thing. Really find your own sources and don't just stick. Wait till the pack leaves. Spend your time with that athlete. And secondly, make eye contact. That might not sound like much, but it's huge. You know how I just picture yourself. How many post games do you see like this? They hold the mic up. The player isn't looking at the interviewer. The interviewer isn't looking either. And it, it means nothing to either person. So if you want, um, even if they're, you know, not the most penetrating questions, but make sure that person knows that you are a human being and that you know that person's a human being. You know, to kind of circle this maybe to a close, I know we have you for a limited amount of time. We really appreciate you no, coming to campus. You. And the New Hearth event is obviously such a big deal for us every year. It's a great chance to, I think, honor the legacy that, that we have here, but also be able to get just amazing journalists, amazing people in media to be able to come meet with our students. I mean, it is such an honor. It's the power and, and, of and, New Hearth. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's unique to USD, and it's a unique chance, I think, for our students to see somebody who's done it before. And just the ability to see that is cool. You know, we like to usually close the podcast with an Oprah question, so this isn't an original, but... Oh, I was on Oprah. Can I tell you my Oprah story? Yes, please do. Okay, so I was on Oprah, of course, being the first woman, whatever it was. And Oprah and her audience, it was in Chicago, uh, you know, you stand behind a curtain like on those late night shows to come out so this is what oprah says to introduce me and now the woman who's entertaining your husband while you refuse to learn the game <laughs> so i go they hate me they hate me i come out i'm on oprah winfrey i come around the corner and they're like Boo! it was nuts it was nuts but go ahead with your oprah question <laughs> well that's an auspicious beginning to the question <laughs> okay um yeah at this point in your life what do you know for sure yeah, I love that. Uh, I know for sure that I have an attitude of gratitude. I have deep appreciation. I'm not cynical about the career I have. I'm not cynical about sports. I thank you know my family, my mentors, my colleagues. I, I really appreciate the. I appreciate coming here. I mean, Al Newharth, your school's a giant in journalism, so I appreciate coming. I, I do not take any of it for granted. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us here on campus, joining our podcast. We hope you have a good time here in South Dakota. I hope the—I I don't know—I can't even say that I hope the snow melts because we know it won't. But no, it'll I, be great. I hope you're able at least to get to the western side of the state. It's beautiful out there. And when so. I come back, you better know your fights. I know. Michael. I will. I will. <laughs> thank so. you, Adam. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode. 